Welcome to the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations Events Podcast, where we bring you the audio from our public programs, featuring in-depth analysis of topics on China from scholars, journalists, authors, and policymakers. For more interviews, videos, and links to events like this one, visit us at www.ncuscr.org. Okay, hello everyone. I'm Jan Barris, uh, Vice President of the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations. I'm delighted to welcome all of you here today. There are many new faces here. I know Barbara has a following. She brought her own yes. plaque with her. I did. Family, Thank you. friends, Thank you. Uh, Thank you. maybe some former co-workers or current yes, co-workers. Current co-workers. Uh, we're delighted to have everyone here today. And I'm sure you're going to enjoy this not only enjoy this talk very much, but you're going to learn a lot from it. And what you don't learn, you can then go out and buy this wonderful book, which we're selling very inexpensively, uh, Will China Save the Planet? Um, Barbara, we just did a short podcast that's going to air as part of our podcast series. And just before we started, she gave me the wonderful news that she just heard today from Amazon that her book has been chosen as the number one new policy release of all of Amazon. Which is, you know, this isn't just environmental policy, this is policy public writ policy. large, public yeah. policy writ large. So it's wonderful. And as I told her, someone had mistakenly told me that this book was very sort of um, heavy technologically oriented. And so I have to admit I wasn't looking forward to reading it before interviewing her. But to my surprise, it's geared to people like me who have a great amount of interest in what's going on in China in terms of environmental issues, particularly energy issues and climate change issues. And it's written in a manner that even I can understand. So, but there's enough technical stuff in it for those of you who are techies. So I'm gonna stop talking, um, let Barbara talk for a while, um, not too long because we wanna have a chance for all of you to ask questions afterwards. So you have her um, resume and bio in front of you, so I'm not going to take time to go into that. I'm just going to say that it's um, a, both a professional and certainly a personal pleasure for me to welcome Barbara here today because we go way back. I've known her at least since the early 90s, and not just Barbara, but her husband, who is uh, now retired, but a foreign service officer. I was also in that business at one point. Uh, and both Barbara and her husband, Stephen Young, have been just enormously helpful to the National Committee over the past several years. And in fact, they just both participated in our Chinatown Hall, which is an event we do every fall. And we know we can always call on the two of them to help us out. And we're very grateful to you and Steve both for doing that. And we're grateful to you for being here tonight. So. Thank well, you. Well, thank you, Jan. I mean, it's my pleasure to be here. And I just want to say the work of the National Committee is just pivotal, especially in these days where the U.S.-China relationship is so tense and fraught uh, for everybody. I think you folks are really pioneering in trying to keep, uh, keep the relationship going, which is so valuable in, in every aspect. So uh, thank you for you, and thank you for all you do. And thank you, all of you, for coming to be with me tonight. I really appreciate it. Uh, and I'll start by saying, of course, that uh, Donald Trump famously called climate change a hoax perpetrated by the Chinese in, <laughs> in order to harm U.S. manufacturing. 
But the Trump administration's own scientists and 13 federal agencies just last week issued their own report on climate change, which they, you know, dumped on Black Friday, which made it unequivocal case that climate change is happening, it's happening now, it is caused primarily by human activity, and we have to move as quickly as we can uh, to take action to avoid serious impacts here in the U.S. and throughout the world. And even more uh, uh, seriously for me, and for many of you who've seen it, is another report issued by the U.N. Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change just a few weeks ago, where for the first time the uh, global team of scientists found that we have to move even faster than we thought to avert the worst impacts of devastating catastrophic climate change. Uh, and they underscored the urgent need, the unprecedented need for collective action and what's really needed is a fundamental transformation of the way that we all obtain, use, and store energy. That's what it's going to take. We have to move by 2050 to pretty much zero out coal and to have renewable energy provide 70 to 85 percent of our energy, which is a tall order. Uh, and just yesterday, another report hit the books by the UN Environment Program. This is their annual emissions gap report, where they found that the countries in the G20, particularly, but most countries in the world are nowhere near meeting even the pledges that they made at, in the Paris Agreement. And those, those pledges are not enough to get us even a third of the way that we need to be to limit our rise in global temperature to less than two degrees Celsius. And if we need to limit that rise to only 1.5 degrees Celsius above pre-industrial levels, which is what the, uh, the IPC says, we have to increase our uh, ambition by sevenfold. Every country in the world has to work harder to meet the pledges they've already made and to scale up their ambition. They're all supposed to announce new targets starting in 2020. But as I explain in my book, the future of the climate does depend in large part upon China. Not just because it's the world's largest emitter of greenhouse gases, it's responsible for about 27% of all CO2 emissions. But also on the flip side, because China is leading a global clean energy revolution that is transforming our energy system worldwide, and into my view, it's the best hope we have of meeting that target of fundamentally transforming our electric system to one that's based on clean energy. The other reason that the future depends in large part upon China is because of its massive Belt and Road Initiative, 
which some estimates, it's the largest infrastructure investment program in history, uh, estimated that it will cost between four and eight trillion dollars. What China chooses to fund in these 70 countries around the world is really going to determine in large part whether those countries will meet their own climate commitments. So that's why China's pivotal in so many ways. So I was in the room when it happened. <laughs> so who's ever seen Hamilton will recognize that line. But I was when I first moved to China in 1990. Uh, that was when China was preparing for the Rio conference at which all the countries in the world signed the Framework Convention on Climate Change. And I was in the room when Premier Li Peng invited uh, ministers from 40 developing countries to work together on a joint strategy for negotiating that Framework Convention in climate change. It was a watershed moment. It was the first time that China had positioned itself as the leading voice of the developing world on climate change. And since that time, China has undergone a remarkable transformation from climate outlier, a country that was widely blamed for the failure of the Copenhagen summit to reach a global climate treaty, to what it is now, as President Xi Jinping calls a climate torchbearer who is advocating for global environmental governance. And today, of course, with the uh, Trump administration's decision, announcement that they will withdraw from the Paris Agreement, that has left a global vacuum in climate leadership, that China is in many cases, though not all, working to fill. But today, however, China still faces substantial challenges in decarbonizing its economy, cleaning up its air pollution, and transitioning to clean energy while continuing to ensure sustainable economic growth. So my book uh, chronicles how far China has come, uh, the challenges it must overcome, and, and the implications for the United States and other countries of this central issue of our day, climate change. So there's, there's no silver bullet in the fight against climate change, but there is an elephant in the room, and that is coal consumption in China. You know, China's the largest emitter of greenhouse gases, but 80% of its emissions come from coal, the dirtiest form of, of, of energy. It's also the leading source of China's choking air pollution. So, so President Trump complains that the United States is at war uh, on coal, but it's really China that has declared a war on coal. And, and my book lays out the enormous array of policies, plans, targets, incentives, rules, regulations, market mechanisms, inspection teams. It's quite an uh, amazing story of what China has been doing 
since the time of 2013, that air apocalypse, that's what triggered all this. What they're doing to dethrone old King Cole. And these include a mandatory cap on mandatory national cap on coal consumption, which my organization, the Natural <coughs> Resources Defense Council, really spearheaded and continues to work with China on implementing. It also includes China's launch last year of what may well become the world's largest carbon trading market. And the impact of what China does on coal is significant. So coal use tripled between 2000, the year right around when China joined the WTO, and 2013, tripled. But starting in 2013, when China announced its new air quality action plan, for the first time, coal use plateaued. And then it dropped from two for three years, 2014 to 2016. And why is that significant? Because that's in large part the reason why global CO2 emissions stabilized for those three years, even while the world economy continued to grow. So that was a cause for a tremendous amount of hope, uh, but it's still a bumpy road for China, at least in the short term, because this starting last year and into this year, coal use has started to creep up again, and so have global CO2 emissions. So this is really the epic battle I talk about in my book. Uh, what challenges China faces from local governments, from state-owned coal companies, from, you know, how does it ensure uh, jobs for all the people that it's displacing in the coal industry and in heavy industry as it, sh as it moves towards a, a cleaner, more sustainable economy? This is what we're seeing playing out right now in China as we speak. And it's very hard for me to keep up with all the developments because it's changing almost every day as China struggles, struggles to deal with these obstacles. Yet there's more than the story to that, because China, as I said, is also <coughs> leading this global clean energy revolution, which leads people like the experts at Bloomberg New Energy Finance to say they estimate that 18% of the coal plants that are now being planned and built worldwide, only 18% will ever be built because of the rise of solar and wind. So let me talk about that for a second. So. Ten years ago, in the run-up to the Copenhagen summit, uh, China was the leading exporter of solar panels worldwide. But its domestic solar industry was virtually non-existent just ten years ago. Uh, ten years ago, of course, you remember, was the global economic crisis. And China, as the world's largest manufacturer of solar panels, suddenly saw its market disappear as countries were no longer providing subsidies, no longer importing. So China decided it had to do something, develop its own domestic solar industry. And just like that, today, China leads the world in solar power capacity and in wind power capacity. <laughs> Last year, it installed as much solar power as any other country had on the ground. And 
it has to keep increasing its solar targets. You know, it has five-year plans. It, it has already smashed its 2020 plan uh, target so several times. So now its new 2020 target is going to give China five times the amount of solar power capacity as we have in the United States today. Five times. And I just wish I could show you some pictures here. One of my favorite images is a solar farm in the Tibetan Plateau that has <coughs> four million solar panels, mm -hmm. just to give you an idea. And But one I like even better is uh, recently China uh, opened up the world's first floating power plant, solar power plant. And it is floating on a lake over a collapsed coal mine. <laughs> I, I thought the image there very, very telling. But uh, and and as a result, China is not only increasing its 2020 target, but its 2030 target. Its Paris official Paris, Paris pledge was to make non-fossil energy 20 percent of its electricity mix uh, by 2030. It's now planning to increase that to 35%. Renewable <coughs> energy alone. It's remarkable. It's remarkable. But my book, it's never that easy. Because China faces a lot of problems integrating all that solar and wind into the grid for a variety of reasons that I outlined. But the bottom line reason is China's entire economy and its entire power sector was built to accelerate the development of coal-fired power plants. And the vested interests that benefited from that don't want to change. So in order to move to the next step, China has to really undergo deep reforms in its power sector, which NRDC is also helping to uh, to move along by bringing in all the relevant stakeholders to really grapple with some of these very, very difficult issues. But this is, to me, in researching this book, the most incredible uh, impact of China. So it, is, it has been the world's leading investor in renewable energy uh, for the past 10 years. But last year, it invested $127 billion. That means for every $1 the U.S. invested in renewable energy, China invested three. Mm -hmm. And it's planning to invest another $360 billion by 2020 and $6 trillion by 2030. That's what it's going to take. Uh, and the U.S. Department of Energy uh, calculated that in the solar industry alone, China has spent $47 billion, uh, not just in subsidies, but also in R&D. And it's already beginning to uh, become a world leader in innovation of the next generation of, of solar panels, which you know is sad for me because the US was where the original solar panel was developed, and the US leads in innovation. It still has that opportunity to continue that leadership if the government weren't cutting all the subsidies and the, and the funding for, 
for R&D here. But the, the China understands that renewable energy is the leading market opportunity of the 21st century, but they're benefiting everybody. But because of that heavy amount of subsidy, solar energy and wind energy, the price of building these plants has dropped by 70 percent since 2009. 70 percent. And the International Energy Agency estimates that solar power may become the cheapest form of electricity in as little as five years. Five years. I mean, we all think of solar, oh, it's impractical, oh, it's expensive. Well, last year, the world installed more solar power than coal, gas, and nuclear combined. Combined. That's the impact of China that I'm talking about. That's the only way that we're going to get to that 70 to 85 percent renewable energy by 2050 that we're talking about. Uh, so there's another problem with solar power and, and wind power, of course, which is right now in many jurisdictions, you can only get the power when the sun is shining or when the wind is blowing and there's not that capacity to store it until when it's needed. That's been a huge obstacle as well for everybody. But here's where China's stepping up as well in pouring, pouring massive amounts of money into development of batteries to store renewable energy and batteries for electric vehicles. And here again, the story's the same. In the last five years alone, because of China building, like most of the 20 mega factories, gigafactories for battery storage that are, are being built around the world, they've brought down the cost of these electric um, batteries by two thirds in just five years. So here's the story again and again and again. That gives me, that gives me hope. And last year, China built 50% of all the electric batteries in the world. You've heard of Tesla's factory. <laughs> the Chinese juggernaut is, is beyond anything that Tesla could dream of. So speaking of electric vehicles, my book also details how China jump-started <laughs> the world's largest electric vehicle market in essentially the last five years. And through the, the Wall Street Journal says this is, China did this through sheer force of will and lots of money, I add. <laughs> but Tom Friedman saw that this was coming and he saw that China had identified electric vehicles as a strategic industry uh, way back in 2010. He called it a, a multi-billion dollar game-changing moonshot. China wanted to do that. And why, again, Choking air pollution, energy security. China's now become the leading, you know, uh, oil importer in the world, and it's growing very fast as their car market continues to grow. But also, China identified electric vehicles as a technology that the U.S. car makers had left on the table. China has no real expertise in manufacturing cars; it could never compete. So it said, "But electric cars." We can, we can do that. We can do that. And I was actually there, I, I talk about in my book, when this visionary man who has an automotive engineer had come back to China, his native Shanghai from uh, Germany, where he worked for Audi, 
And he said, we need to have these, these uh, clean energy vehicles. And so we were there and helping him in the very, very beginning. So I feel like I have been in the room when it happened. Mm -hmm. So it's been my pleasure to really talk about this and some of the people in China who are driving change. It's not just top-down government, faceless bureaucrats. It's people like Wang Gan, who a couple of years after uh, we worked with him in Shanghai, he became China's Minister of uh, Science and Technology, where he just retired last year, earlier this year. But he was the spearhead of the electric vehicles. So right now, from a, a situation of no electric vehicles, China is now the leading market for electric vehicles. It has 40% of all the electric vehicles in the world. It sold 1 million electric vehicles last year, twice as much as the US. It wants to have 5 million on the ground in 2020, 7 million in 2025. Uh, what has that, that done, of course? The price is coming down. The pr China uh, spent, what, $58 billion in promoting the electric vehicle industry. Again, subsidies. R&D, and I should point out that right now, because the price of solar and electric vehicles are coming down so fast, and Ch China doesn't want to keep spending all this money, right, on subsidies, so it's in the process of phasing those out, and, and is trying very carefully to make sure that when it does that, ch these technologies are able to um, survive on their own without any market subsidies. It's a tip tough job. but. Again, the, this is um, remarkable to me, is that experts estimate that electric vehicles are going to become cost competitive with traditional internal combustion engine in eight to 10 years, and largely because of what China has done. And again, it's in their self-interest, but it's in all of our self-interest. Um, and that's, uh, that's where we are. So, this uh, report by the um, IPCC, the UN Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, said that the world needs to spend $2.4 trillion every year on clean energy technologies between now and 2030, if we're going to have a chance of making that fundamental transition and avoiding the very worst of catastrophic climate change. $2.4 million a year is seven times more than we're spending now. Million okay. or trillion? Trillion. Trillion, yeah. Sorry, did I say million? No. Yeah. <laughs> I wish it were that. That's a piece of change. No, $2.4 a year. Thank you. Now, governments can't provide that money. So, again, another visionary in China, his name is Ma Jun. He is spearheading the development of green finance because he sees how a global system of green finance can mobilize private capital to provide the rest of what's needed. And so he's developed the first green finance guidelines in China, and then he spearheaded, when China hosted the G20, he spearheaded a green finance study group that developed principles for the G20. On develop, for countries to develop their own system of green finance. And just to give you another example, uh, green bonds. That's one aspect of green finance that China decided to launch two years ago, a green bond market. And within two years, 
It's the second largest green bond market in the world after the United States. And we'll see what happens next year. So that's, again, something that most people don't, don't know. It, it really is going to be absolutely essential going forward for every country. But China's developed the model and is showing the way. Uh, however, as I said before, this Belt and Road Initiative, what we're seeing now, now that President Xi Jinping said that he wanted this Belt and Road Initiative to be low carbon and green. But the fact of the matter is, and China is de has developed guidelines, and they're developing now operational regulations for China's overseas investment. But they haven't caught up with the reality yet. And the reality is that as China cracks down on coal at home, those uh, state-owned coal companies are actively searching for opportunities, whether it be inland China or overseas. So China and uh, Japan and Korea right now are financing a lot of coal plants overseas. Um, and, you know, the Belt and Road Initiative is technology agnostic. You know, some people say, well, that's what these countries want. But if China moves ahead with them, and if these countries move ahead with all these coal plants, they're not going to be able to meet their own climate targets. So there are some positive trends. The coal, um, you know, plants overseas, the financing has dropped this past year, but we don't know if that's a trend yet. But at the same time, China's investment in renewable energy overseas is, is moving ahead and is increasing each year. So last year, $25 uh, billion in green bonds were used to finance uh, clean infrastructure in these developing countries. And uh, the World Resources Institute just came out with a study that shows that it's really in China's best interest to move towards the green technology it says it wants to foster overseas. And they analyzed these Paris commitments of 70 different countries and realized that if you look at all of them, what's, how much financing is needed for those countries to meet their Paris commitments? And it's $6 trillion. Again, China is the country best positioned <coughs> to help provide that. But we'll see how it goes. It's see how, we'll see how it goes. The jury is still out on that. So just to conclude, um, you may be asking at this point, will China save the planet? <laughs> and so of course my answer is going to be, uh, you'll have to buy the book yeah. to find <laughs> out. <laughs> but anyway, regardless of the answer, there's room for, as I said before, for every country in the world to step up its ambition. Uh, I'm pleased to say, and some of my colleagues in the back are working very hard on this, even in the United States with the Trump administration declaring that climate change is not happening. Oh, I have to say just yesterday, just another example. You've all heard that the GM, General Motors, is closing down some plants. So what did President Trump, how did he respond? Did anybody read? He was not happy. Right, but what did he threaten to do? Take away subsidies for electric cars. That's right. As, as some well, of my colleagues say, we are looking ahead. in this country at the federal <laughs> level, looking in the rear view mirror rather than looking ahead. But the good news is that states and cities and investors and individuals 
are all working really hard. We were at the Global Climate Action Summit in San Francisco in September where that was made abundantly clear. So that also gives me hope. But basically, time is running out. The message is there loud and clear. And, and the challenges above, uh, facing all of us require nothing less than the full court press. So thank you very much. Thank you. Okay, so Barbara has done a, a wonderful run through of the book, just sort of enticing you to giving you some of the challenges. Um, so let's ask, start with some questions. And uh, please, when you ask them, will you introduce yourself and start right back here with the woman on the. Yes, you. Okay. Uh, my name is Lolita Jackson. I work for the New York City Mayor's Office of Climate Policy. I'm the climate diplomat, whatever that means. So, uh, <laughs> just like I mentioned, yeah. the City of New York. Yes. Great. Yes. So, um, I'm glad you brought up the Global Climate Action Summit because most of the action in the United States is in cities and, and, and states. And we get a significant amount of Chinese delegations that come to meet with us. And actually, two of our people are going to um, China next week to meet about climate. And so I was wondering if you could tell the audience to talk a little bit about the role of cities and how they're doing their own work in addition to the national work that's done in China. Yes, I wish I could turn to my colleague, Dale Brick, who works on this every day, because I work in China, but she can tell you what's happening in the U.S. No, I mean yeah. Chinese cities. No, the Chinese, oh, Chinese, yes, Chinese cities. I can talk about that. Yes. Oh, okay. She can All talk right. to them after about what she's She can doing. tell you more about the U.S. That's right. That's right. So China has a top-down government, right? It made the national pledges of peaking its CO2 emissions nationwide by 2030, if not earlier. And, and in this uh, emission gap report that came out later, they said China was one of the only exceptions to the rule that countries are falling short in meeting their pledges. But unfortunately, I think it's because China has a tendency to underpromise and overdeliver. And I think it could have been more ambitious in its initial pledge. Okay, but, but often many cities in China are just working very hard to meet, do their part to meet the target. However, there is a group of, I think it's 20, 25 cities that have formed an alliance of early peaking cities. So they have more ambition. They want to peak their CO2 emissions before the 2030 um, date, the China's Paris Pledge. But more than that, just like in this country, there are certain cities that are way ahead, much more progressive. And we, in my China team, we work closely with those cities. So like Shanghai is one. Uh, Shenzhen, Shenzhen near Hong Kong, which was nothing but rice field when I lived in China, is now a whole big new city. And they have, they're working every day to test and implement new policies, whether it be buildings, um, because some of these big cities in Hong Kong too, most of their CO2 emissions come from buildings, just like New York City. And we have actually brought, I'm sure that's why they're coming to visit you, because we've brought experts from New York City to China to explain Mayor Bloomberg's greater, greater, greater building challenge. And we've been working with cities to implement that. And in fact, Shanghai was the first um, uh, city in China last year to announce a building energy benchmarking scheme modeled after New York City. 
So, and, and Jiangsu province is the sister province of California. So we spent decades with, uh, promoting the exchange of, of those two jurisdictions on a whole, whole range. But uh, at this point, the, um, the best exchange of best practices works both ways. For example, China leads the world in the high-speed rail. And I remember when Arnold Schwarzenegger was the governor of California, we went with him to China. He was begging you know, the Chinese to invest in, in California's uh, high-speed rail project. <laughs> so there's a lot going on. It's not just all top-down. And, and the leading cities are, are, are uh, inspirational to me. To supplement that, her, her answer to her question, can you talk a little bit how the way China's mayors and urban leaders and provincial leaders now, I assume, too, are being evaluated vis-a-vis ah. -vis environment as opposed to the past forms yes. of evaluation? Yes, no, that's had a major Yes, impact. that's right. When I say China has a top-down government, it's, it's uh, the case, this is a very important point, that provincial governors, city mayors, their job performance is evaluated by the central government. Um, and that's what determines their career prospects, whether they're going to move up in the bureaucracy and maybe get to be a mayor of one of those progressive cities, or, uh, and that's what happens if they, if they do well. But the problem is that for decades, these leaders at the local level were rated solely on how well they grew the local GDP. Mm -hmm. And environmental impacts be damned. Well, so talk about perverse incentives. If China's trying to move to a system of lower but, high, uh, lower but higher quality economic growth, that system has to change, and it is changing. So the government has announced that environmental quality needs to be part of the evaluation system. But some of those key cities have decided, I, I, I think it's... Uh, Shanghai. Well, Shanghai. Important. Well, yeah, but some cities have said it has to be equally important. But Shanghai dropped the GDP targets altogether, and it's only environmental. So that's what needs to happen to get to that change at the local level. Thank you, Gina. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yeah. Um, well, this is just a follow-up. Introduce your. I'm Natty, and I'm the National Committee. Oh. Um, this is just a follow-up to that question. I was wondering if you could speak a little bit to the <coughs> downsides of target setting. I know there are some news in Beijing last year about, you know, a lot of people, poorer people living in the cold because they have to turn off their heat. So I was wondering if you could speak to some of the negative impacts of setting targets and needing to target so quickly. That's a great example. I talk about this in the book. So in its zeal to uh, cut back on coal use, last winter uh, China decided to crack down on the use of coal for heating in residential buildings in the, in the region surrounding Beijing, and also the use of coal in small industrial boilers. And this is a small source of China's overall coal consumption. Most of it's for big, heavy industry. It's only about 10 to 20 percent of total coal consumption. But because there's no controls on emissions, it's a huge source of pollution. So the government decided, the central government decided to crack down and require a lot of towns and, and villages around Beijing last year to cut and to switch from coal to natural gas. Unfortunately, uh, they weren't, they, it wasn't planned very well. And it shows the limits of this top-down central planning, just like you said, because a lot of the local governments in their zeal to show they're going to carry <laughs> out the central government mandate, 
they just took the coal away. They shut down the coal plants in these people's homes. And uh, the, the natural gas, either the infrastructure wasn't there yet, or because there was such an immediate influx of demand, the price skyrocketed, skyrocketed, people couldn't afford it. Entire villages were left without heat in the middle of winter. So that caused an outcry. So the, you know, the Ministry of Environment had to, had to step back on that. Um, and you know, all year they've been trying to get more of that natural gas infrastructure in place. And imports of LNG doubled last year as a result, and also because of cars. But this year, I wasn't sure, or what are they going to do? Are they going to just give it up? And they're doing it again. Um, they've required another 3.5 million households to switch away from coal. That's, that's 10 million people. So hopefully this time they're better prepared for it. But yes, it's not always going to work perfectly. And that's the, I think that's a very good example of the limits of top-down planning. Yes. Yeah. So, well, thank you very much for a great talk. And oh, I'm sorry. I'm Joan Kaufman. I'm with the Schwartzman Scholars Program. I'm a longtime China person. Um, so, I um, thank you for the fabulous talk, and I'm looking forward to reading the book and for all the great work that you know that uh, NRDC has done over the years in China. Um, and my question is really about the Belt and Road Initiative and China's outward investment. You know, some of it obviously is through the development banks, the AIB and stuff, that have some environmental governance, you know, mechanisms for reviewing projects. But what about all the stuff from the commercial banks and the other stuff that's happening out there? Are there any, uh, you know, if we're really going to make any of these targets, the global governance mechanisms, uh, you know, through the G20 or whatever else, yeah. something needs to happen to be able to say that's not okay. You can't export your the coal plants out to the rest of the world because we'll never meet the targets. It's just shifting the problem, right? So where do you see the action and the movement on the global governance stuff, the regional government, and you know, for the commercial sector, the private sector that is doing a lot of the stuff, is the you know, getting the loans from, you know, the China industrial bank or whatever, you know. And then when you answer that, including that, um, how much of that outward investment, <coughs> excuse me, in, in coal elsewhere, how much of that is SOEs and how much is private? And if it's SOEs, then is the government willing to say, no, you can't do that? I mean, they don't have as much authority over the private sector, except in the financing aspect. Yeah, but they would potentially over but the SOEs. over the SOEs, they should have some control. Yeah. Right. So actually, most of the loans, the financing of, Excuse me one second. For those who aren't China made yeah. it's SOEs, the state-owned enterprises right. that is run by the national government. Uh, most of the financing of uh, the Belt and Road Initiative and the coal plants overseas comes from the big banks, China yeah. Development Banks. Um, and I think there's um, two of them, I can't remember the names, that together provide as much overseas financing as the next six multi-development banks in the world combined, like the World Bank. Yeah. Is it but so are you saying the China Development Bank is yeah. much State-owned, state-owned banks. Right. But I, I think the question is about commercial banks, like the Bank of China. Or 
they're not playing a big role. They're not playing a big role. So you would think China could have more control since it's coming from these big China development banks. Um, so it's a question of, of standards and leadership. We're not there yet, although the you know the aspiration is to is to green those banks. But the one spot of good news, you mentioned the Asian Investment in, in Infrastructure Investment Bank. Now China is one of the countries that's part of that. They're not the only one. And there's another bank, New Development Bank, that's a combination from the of the BRICS countries. Right, uh, Brazil, Russia, India, and China. So those banks have done what we want them to do. They've pledged to make their um, their lending green. They're they're developing their own internal guidelines on this, and they're doing a pretty good job so far. So I would like to think that that's a harbinger of where this is going to go, but it, it remains to be seen. It remains to be seen. And one of my colleagues just went to work at AIIB. And uh, one of my law school classmates who worked at the World Bank for many years, Natalie Lichtenstein, she was the advisor to the AIIB in developing those guidelines. So that made that gave me some reason for hope, too. She's really good. She's very yes, good. she gave yeah. a talk here a couple oh, months ago. Oh, excellent. OK, yes. Um, one question while you're sitting on the and I guess one of the reasons why I'm guessing why they're um, building coal fire power plants out in these other countries is because they're trying to close them down in China. And then they're worried about jobs yes. in terms of, because uh, their whole economy is built on building steel and coal. And so I guess one question I guess is, when in terms of retraining them to the new, newer alternative energy, renewable energy, solar, is there, is there some kind of more government uh, training programs that, since it's more top down, that they're able to offer training to, to people so that more, the transition is easier? That's a very good point. As I said before, that's one of the fundamental challenges that China faces is jobs for the people in the coal mines, in the coal power plants, in the steel plants and cement plants that are being closed down. Um, and uh, China has set aside a very large fund for job retraining. But the last I heard, most of that money was going to pay back wages <laughs> of workers in these state-owned enterprise. Because one of the reasons a big reason why China's economy is slowing down now is it's just these SOEs, state-owned enterprises, are saddled with debt, and they haven't been able to pay their workers. So I'm afraid that job retraining money, a lot of it has been siphoned off. Um, but you know, I do believe that there are tremendous opportunities, job opportunities for people who, who want to be retrained. Not everybody wants to move away, you know, but it doesn't even have to be a uh, place where somebody has to move to another province to work on a solar plant or wind plant. And, and, and here again, I want to get back to green buildings because China is the largest uh, building construction site on the planet. You know, it's never, we've never seen such uh, urbanization. And so China has its 13 five-year plan for buildings requires that 50% of all new construction in urban areas anywhere in the country has to be green. 
It has to meet China's uh, three-star green system for energy efficiency and water efficiency. So how's that going to happen? It requires a lot of workers. So here's a chance, just one example of where you can match uh, workers with the need, with the demand. And that's true in every part of the country. So in my mind, there, here's another opportunity China has yet to grasp. Um, another one is this. Every winter, like I said before, last winter, not just that cold to gas shift in the rural areas, but China's main you know, um, tactic for cutting down the winter air pollution is to shut down production, to require aluminum plants, steel plants, coal plants to just shut down with a tremendous, tremendous impact on the economy, negative impact. But if they took a longer view, they could realize that investment in making those plants more energy efficient would be a better way to cut down on emissions, cut down on energy use while continuing to make a profit. And that was the uh, focus of, and still is, the main focus of NRDC's work in China. We really spearheaded this idea of energy efficiency. When I first went around to talk to people about it, nobody knew what it was or cared because China was still trying to electrify the country. And then it was in 2004 when there were widespread shortages, power, powder outages around the country. They came back to me and said, now, what was that about energy efficiency? <laughs> But there's still so much potential here because even though China last year spent uh, half of the money that was spent anywhere in the world on energy efficiency, it's energy intensity, the amount of energy used to produce one unit of GDP is much higher than the world average. And we have projects where we've been going around to factories and actually helping them doing audits to see the, the, the really cheap low-cost, low-hanging fruit that they can put in a small amount of an investment that's going to continue to pay back over time, not just when their bottom line, but for the environment. So huge opportunities. Can I ask a probably yeah. naive question just because I don't no, understand no this? Well, this may be. You said in answering this question that China now mandates that 50 percent of its new buildings have to be energy efficient or have to meet a certain standard. Yeah. Why isn't it a hundred percent? Why don't all of them have to meet that standard? Is it just so much more expensive to build it that way? Uh, because in the end, from what I hear you say, in the end, even more expensive in the, to build it, in the end, it's going to be more energy efficient right. and they'll save money. Right. So why not? So set a really somebody, high some guru, years ago, did a study of every type of energy. What are the pros and what are the cons? And of course, if you look at coal, we know the pollution is a big issue. If you solar even has problems with recycling and the you know the chemicals used in it, nuclear power, you've got nuclear waste. And they said energy efficiency is the cheapest, cleanest source of energy. They actually call it instead of a megawatt, a negawatt. <laughs> Amory Lovins pioneered that term. But they said now what's the what's the main obstacle to energy efficiency? And they said it's education. It's education, that's all. Because people have to come to understand that it costs more upfront, but it pays back. And that's what we were doing. Actually, we did a study for um, Jiangsu province way back when, when they came back to us about energy efficiency, and we just studied 
that whole system and found out they could save the equi uh, equivalent of several dozen enormous coal-fired power plants through the low-cost, no-cost methods. And, and how much energy it would save, how much of every type of, of uh, emissions. But it does require money up front. And we all know this. I mean, it's in, in our own homes, right? We're often not uh, uh, willing to put in that initial investment to buy an energy efficiency refrigerator because it costs more up front, even though you can see how much it's going to pay for itself. Well, that's just the same situation. So they're trying. 50% is, is very, very ambitious, though. Because as you know, implementation and enforcement in China is a huge problem. Huge problem. So if they can get that far, I would be very excited. Yes? Hey, Barbara. I got your book yesterday, and I thoroughly oh. enjoyed it. Oh, thank you. But, uh, Tell me your name. Irving Lee. OK. And what do you do, Irving? I'm a retired translator. Excellent. That's what I tell people. It seems like as far as the heat, the transfer from, from coal to gas, it seems to make more sense to do that during the summer months than the non-heating period, because that's, that's what I do. <laughs> so I don't know yes. if you did that or not. But anyway, um, I read your book, but I didn't notice you, you missed out on the N-word. And you brought out today, it's nuclear right. power. Right. Whether or not China considers nuclear power as an alternative. And what your opinion on that? What the Chinese government's opinion yes, on that? Yes, yes. And also, how does carbon trading work? Could you explain that also? Thank you. These are both very good questions, but really quickly. So China is pursuing nuclear power. It's probably the only country in the world right now right. that's building new plants. But um, I didn't include it because, in my definition of renewable energy, it's not renewable, uh, and also because there's serious questions within the China. We actually held the first conference in China on nuclear safety after the Fukushima accident. So that's a big concern of the public uh, in China. And the government is concerned that if it goes too far down the nuclear path and there's one accident, they will be blamed. Mm -hmm. Unlike in Japan, where it was the utility company that was blamed. Um, the other problem is nuclear power requires a lot of water. And there just isn't any in the internal uh, part of the country. And as I said before, that's a situation that's getting worse and worse because of climate change. So the only place to really put these plants is along the coast, which is the most highly populated part of the country. So there's a lot of debate back and forth whether China's ambitious plans for nuclear are going to be realized. But the bottom line is, guess what? Cost. You know, ch as I said before, China nuclear plants are so much more expensive than just about any other source of energy. And the government is undergoing these power sector reforms where they're trying to move away from subsidies, as I said before, for solar, for wind, for vehicles. And nuclear power can't survive without heavy, heavy state subsidies. So that's another reason why I think there's a big question mark on the nuclear power. Um, Carbon trading. So quickly, basically, if you've got two coal-fired power plants, because China decided to start just with focusing on coal-fired power plants. Okay, so say you have two plants, and one of them is a regular coal-fired power plant, which is emitting CO2. Another one has installed technology called carbon capture um, that enables it to not emit CO2. So if there's... Um, a requirement that is every plant can only emit X amount of CO2, then the 
plant that is emitting can decide either to install the carbon capture technology itself or it may be cheaper for them to buy some of the carbon credits from a plant that's emitting below that requirement. So it's a market mechanism. We have it in California, here in the Northeast. I'm sure you can tell us more about, and uh, our folks in the back can tell us more about what's happening in the Northeast Regional Greenhouse Gas Initiative. But the, the China has separate, uh, several problems it has to overcome because it is not a free market, right? It, the, the carbon market is premised on a trade of, uh, of these carbon credits. And also the other problem is you have to, if you get a certificate that says, I purchased one ton of carbon from this plant over here, you have to be darn sure it's worth something that plant actually reduced its emissions by that one ton and that you can sell it on the market. And data quality is a serious problem in China. That's the kind of thing they're trying to deal with right now. And a legal system for enforcing all the trades. These are all the fundamental building blocks of a carbon trading system that China's still in the process of developing. Is there a central authority that determines whether or not the carbon yes. trade is viable or correct? Well, that's the rules that they're developing right now. There were seven pilot projects in different provinces before. But now the government has established, I can't remember which government agency is responsible for running the trades, and there's another one responsible for verifying. So, but that's, again, a work in progress. Yes? Hi, Peggy Miller, um, Technology and Intellectual Property Attorney. So I know China's also targeted artificial intelligence as an industry, which feeds into technology for energy and such. Um, and it seems to be in their self-interest to do this, and so they'll hopefully continue doing it. But it's also the Trump administration's view that they just want to get China as annoyed as possible to squeeze them for other things that they want to have happen. Do you, do you see a situation where the Trump administration causes China to back away from some of these expectations or commitments, or is their own self-interest so strong that no matter what Mr. Orange does, <laughs> well, you know that the, the leaders of both countries are about to meet, um, and so there's a lot of speculation on whether or not they're going to reach some sort of deal, temporary or otherwise, uh, to um, address this trade, growing trade war. Um, but one of the uh, demands that the U.S. government has made is for China to back off on this uh, industrial policy plan called Made in China 2025. And that in that document, China has identified 10 strategic industries, including artificial intelligence, including electric vehicles, where it has a plan for really dominating the market by the year 2025. And I don't see how China was ever going to back off on that. I really don't. Um, because I mean, they're going to probably make some concessions, like opening up their market further to foreign investment, like they've been uh, doing on electric vehicles. But this industrial policy is, is, is key to their moving up the value chain from instead of being the ones that put the, the, you know, the iPhones together from really being the ones leading these industries. And I think it's a real 
illustration of the very different approaches of these two economies. It's all, you know, China's never going to become a fully market economy and just let, uh, you know, these different technologies uh, rise and fall on their own. And I think in the case of energy, that's probably a good thing. I mean, you can't just, you know, I think industrial policy, as I've just explained, has been very successful here. And I just read an article the other day that says, well, you know, uh, when the U.S. was starting out, it had industrial policy too, enable, to enable it to kind of overtake the uh, U.K. during the Industrial Revolution. So I think this is just so fundamental to China. I don't think that's going to change. But we'll see. Yes. I'm Margo Landburn of the National Committee. You mentioned a couple times fleetingly in your talk and your response to questions, and you also mentioned it a little bit in the book, that enforcement has been an issue in China. But you don't really address it head on. And it seems that, in theory, these policies and plans and targets and so on are wonderful, and one comes away from your book feeling quite optimistic, which is not a sentiment I've been feeling <laughs> But I do wonder about the enforcement piece. Yeah, it's, it's absolutely essential. And I would say this, that China knows how to enforce its mandates when it wants to. And there's a million examples here I won't go into. But there's a lot of examples where it has these policies and plans in place, and it's really not doing a lot to enforce them. And I would argue most other environmental uh, you know, issues are not getting the attention that air pollution is, that air pollution is, like water pollution, like desertification, like loss of biodiversity, um, because that's not a top government priority. But air pollution has become one. And a lot of that is, I talk in the book, China also acts, um, you know, they act to protect their national interest, national sovereignty, and also international image. Mm -hmm. And the fact of the matter is you can see the air pollution a lot more than you can the water pollution, even though the water pollution may be, and I think is a much more serious problem. But all those pictures you see of those skies over Beijing and uh, have, have had an impact here. So the government, just the other day, I mean, this is a sign of it. The, premier, uh, the uh, president, Xi Jinping, has named air pollution one of the three tough battles, right? What um, are the other two? Uh, the debt, the debt. Um, and I think poverty is still one, though I can't remember. Got a big leg up on that. Yeah, they, I, that, I may be wrong about the third one, but to have air pollution up there on the top is quite remarkable. And also, just a couple of weeks ago, they established a new leading group headed by the, a vice premier and very high hitters there just to deal with the air pollution problem. So this, to me, is a sign of political will, which is what you need. And then they've been sending these inspection teams to all over the provinces because, again, um, 
they're finding provinces that have been falsifying their air pollution data for years, you know, but they, they, they're sending these teams, they're looking at the books, and they're arresting people. We had an intern um, from Gansu province in, in our U.S. office uh, last year, and he was an environmental activist, and he said there was signs of, of um, failure to comply with environmental regulations at this area that was a um, national monument, but it was being destroyed by development. And they just went and arrested this very high-level official for environmental crimes. So they can if they want to, um, but there's so much to do on enforcement. <laughs> you know, it's the same in the U.S. actually for years. NRDC was bringing lawsuits against water polluters because we had access under law to their monthly discharge monitoring reports and we could compare it to their permit and so they're violating and, um, and win the lawsuits over and over and over and over and over again. And we actually got an award from the US EPA because they couldn't bring those type of suits against all the violators. Well, the situation is much more serious in China, and actually we've been working with um, Chinese NGOs for years, at least a decade here, to enable them to serve that same role in the Chinese system, mm -hmm. to help to uh, actually bring, bring lawsuits against polluters. Now the environmental law has been amended to allow Chinese NGOs to bring lawsuits against the public interest, but not just lawsuits, but really to help them in all their local communities to play a more active role in enforcement. And I think that's really an, a key to getting a system that works. And they now have their own system of environmental courts as well, right? Yes. Is that every pro I know Guizhou province has it. Do all of the provinces have? No, there's just a courts? few um, uh, environmental courts. Um, we've been training judges, too, in all mm -hmm. the courts for for years on helping them to uh, uh, to hear these cases. But I have to say, as a lawyer, as a former litigator, what, re what was most remarkable to me is that after the environmental law was amended to set up this system of public interest lawsuits, mm -hmm. the Supreme Judicial Court of China enacted a set of guidelines, a um, lot more detailed. On, on how these courts, uh, how these cases should be heard. And I read these and I was amazed at how far they uh, went to make it easier for these NGOs to bring these lawsuits, like the burden of proof, um, and to actually, if there was signs that they were being coerced into you know, settling the case, the courts had the right to take over and not allow them to dismiss the case, the bur and because believe me, the, the NGOs in China face a huge set of burdens that we don't have in the U.S. to bring these cases. They don't have the training, they don't have the money to do this. They don't have the expertise to understand how to read these things. But but the the, the, the Supreme People's Court has tried to make it easier, and there've been some really really interesting cases, some really big ones recently that show that, that, uh, that this, these cases can have real teeth. Yes. Yeah. Um, Ethan Goldings, I work for Winrock International and we work on carbon markets okay. and also anti-desertification. Okay. And um, there was a big difference in the uptake. But I wanted to follow up. Yeah. Thank you very much for 
a very positive uh, message, and I agree that we need more of that. But talk a little bit more about what you think might be the positive role for NRDC or organizations like that in supporting NGOs that are they're working with on shoestring budgets with no resources to confront really powerful vested interests. And or speak more broadly about what the role is of a well-intentioned international organizations in supporting that direction. Yeah. Um, so uh, I'll just give you an example of a project that we're, we're hoping to start soon. So China just issued a new Blue Sky Action Plan when the last one um, expired the uh, end of last year. And this plan really focuses on another frontier in the pollution battle, which is diesel trucks. So diesel trucks are responsible for 60% of the pollution um, from transportation in China. And so the, the Ministry of Environment has come up with a whole a diesel action plan where they're going to really crack down and try to get them to uh, comply with the requirements. But, you know, they're so small. The, in fact, at one point, we, we calculated that the Ministry of Environment in Beijing had fewer staff than NRDC. <laughs> so that tells you something. That tells you something. So what we're hoping to do is, and, and, and so they're focusing their efforts on the state, the big clues, the, the state-owned, you know, companies that own these diesel trucks, but there's so many others around the country. So our plan is to try and, because we have the technical expertise, mm -hmm. is to really work with um, a group of, Chinese NGOs and kind of train them to go back to their communities and help work with truck owners, work with the people who are supposed to inspect the trucks, just work at every level to try and explain why it's in their interest mm -hmm. and maybe to help the NGOs bring suit against, uh, you know, a couple of the, uh, the real, the worst offenders. So that's the kind of thing that we try to, to help build the, the civil society in China, but it's, and has the new, inter not so new anymore, international yeah. NGO law, has that put a damper on those efforts or uh, not? You know, well, it took us a while to get registered right. because nobody knew what that meant. But now we're registered. We have to find a government agency to be your overseer. And then you have to report to them all of the activities that we plan for each year and then how well we carried them out. And if we have a new idea, we have to, anyway. So that, you know, that's a whole new regime here. Um, but so far, we've been able to continue our work. So it's just a question of more paperwork and more administrative work for you. But yes. your projects, you are able to yes. continue. I think there's other groups that don't have as, you know, big a presence in China who probably decided it wasn't worth the yes. effort. Yeah. I mean, I think that's the biggest impact. But we we're there. We had to move ahead with it. Um, so, yeah, so far, you know, I haven't seen any impact on what we're doing. We just have to be a lot more open and transparent, a lot more, you know, uh, reporting than than we ever did before. We have about three minutes left. Do we have one last question? Oh, I couldn't believe we'd go to the whole night without you asking a question. Yes. Go ahead. Uh, I'm Douglas Murray. I spent many years with the National Committee. 
and our environmental I remember. Yes. <laughs> nice to see you here. Uh, I guess the question is not necessarily uh, energy, coal, but in the last decade or two, there have been times when there was a lot of publicity to local protests and all over the country. And it's possible to imagine China sort of erupting in the, uh, in the rural areas. That seems to have calmed down. And I wonder if that's a, a real judgment or whether it's somehow hidden. Because the water, the air, uh, food security, energy, pollution, all of those issues are still on the table. Has the population subsided? You know, it's hard to tell, right? Because uh, we don't know. <laughs> I don't hear much about it. I don't know what that means, right? Um, uh, you know, the, I think the government's trying very hard to, you know, uh, give the impression that it's working to solve these problems. And I don't know, like I said before, I sometimes in the question of air pollution, they go too far, like this coal to gas thing. I mean, it shows they're really trying, even if it's not in a, sometimes a misguided way. I mean, they do have huge, you know, programs and policies and targets on, on water pollution, too, um, which I don't follow that much. So it's hard for me to answer that question. But I do know there's been a couple of surveys on public perception towards climate change. And it's interesting because the vast majority of citizens in China understand that climate change is happening, believe that it's caused primarily by human activity, and are confident that the government of China is working to tackle the problem. And, and they're willing to do more on their own, to like spend a little more on you know, low carbon products to help this along. Now, why is that? I, I mean, we they don't have a media that tries to show, on the one hand, here's the you know thousands of scientists and the uh, intergovernmental panel, and on the, two, on the other hand, here's a you know climate denier, and so we really don't know what's happening with climate, right? It's that uh, the state-owned media has been very clear that this is happening, and therefore people don't hear the, the, the you know the few deniers. And there are some in China, but the government feels that it, it's worth it to pursue this no regrets policy of low carbon. So, so that's the good news. Yeah. Yes. I was going to. Some people argue it's very asymmetrical, right? So if you look at the Chinese government, uh, let's leave IQ aside, but they have the much they have a much higher percentage of scientists that are in government. So I think. People would argue that those that there's a credibility. First of all, it's a top-down system, and you basically go with what the government says. But they also the government, I think, people would argue, truly are worried in a uniform way that this is going to be a disaster if it's not dealt with. Whereas in this country, let's leave IQ out of it, but I mean, it's uh, you have a lot less scientists that are senior levels of government, and you have a lot of you know, this is not a top-down country. It's got a lot of, so it's asymmetrical in that sense. So some people argue that the real hope is that the Chinese have figured out that the risks are so great to them, it's an existential risk, 
So they're going to do what it takes to do it, and they have the ability to do that. We have, you know, there's not a sense here uh, that there is a uniform sense that there is that problem. And, you know, the lobbyists, of, you know, the, the industrial base here is much more powerful. So the hope is that China just drives it through. It's probably the only hope, unless climate change turns so drastic that, drastic that people get very nervous because of some, you know, major storm events in the next five years that change everybody's mind. But that's what some people argue, that it's just well, basically that's, a that's what this title is from China. Yes, major storm events and fires. So we had one more question over here. No, I was just asking about the impact of the rollback of all our environmental regulations in this country, or many of them, by this administration. Do we have any sense of what a toll it's taken on the climate here? I mean, obviously we see things worsening, but, you know, that. <clears throat> all I have to say, all I have to say is that NRDC was formed by a group of lawyers, lawyers for the environment, and we have hired so many new lawyers since the elections of 2016 mm -hmm. that we have been suing the government because of these rollbacks on average once every nine days. <laughs> and we've won almost every one so far. So you're fighting the rollback. Fighting the rollback. Oh, okay. And we're winning because the government. Right. Because the law requires that if the government's going to roll back a regulation, it has to follow the same procedure of explaining it on a reasonable basis and to have the evidence to support the rollback. And that's what's missing in all these activities. And actually, this report that just came out last Black Friday from 13 government agencies that shows with you know, impact and facts that climate change is happening is going to be a problem in court. For you. Yeah. You just take a copy of that and wave We're, it around. Exactly. <laughs> because if my gym is a microcosm of this country, <laughs> I would say about 75% of them don't believe in, in climate change and, or that it's man had any uh, involvement in it. So yeah, but the millennials do. But the millennials do. The millennials are, do. That's the hope here, I think. Well, yeah, because they do believe it. millennials in my gym. <laughs> well, your gym. Yeah. Gym. You think people go to gym or <laughs> No, I thought you said you're Jen. I, that's why I said millennials and Jen. Anyway, we have um, surpassed our time. <laughs> but thank you so much.